Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The horror boom of the 1970s is generally accepted to have begun with Rosemary's Baby, the novel that was released in 1967 and was a huge hit, first in the literary world, and then became a an impressive hit when it hit the big screens, when Hollywood made its adaptation just a year later in 1968. In 1968, Rosemary's Baby became only the second movie of the 1960s to actually crack the top 10 at the end of the year in terms of total box office revenue, the first being way back in 1960 with Psycho. It wasn't until 1968 that that was replicated, and sometimes on this podcast I might feel like I go into box office revenue a little bit much, and of course, how much money a movie makes is no indicator of quality, but it is obviously an indicator of popularity. Rosemary's Baby made a lot of money because people bought a lot of tickets, because people wanted to see this thing, because people had already bought the book. Those that hadn't necessarily even bought the book or read the book had heard about it enough that they wanted to go see the movie adaptation of it. And all of this set the stage for the substantial success that horror would find in the 70s. In bookstores, of course, with myriad paperbacks, as well as on the small screen on television with a lot of made-for-TV movies, and that's going to be the subject of some future episode, probably multiple episodes, because I'm fascinated by 70s made-for-TV horror movies, but there were a ton of those. And also, of course, on the big screen, which, for contrast's sake, saw in the 70s somewhere between 8 to 10 movies finish in the top 10 in their respective years of release at the box office. Now, that's 8 to 10 because some of the math on that, some of the numbers that you get might be a little bit unreliable from that era, but there's really no argument over the fact that movies like Alien, The Omen, The Amityville Horror, of course Jaws, which was the biggest movie of all time upon its release, all of those movies were huge, huge hits in the biggest some of the biggest movies of the entire decade. And that's without even mentioning, of course, one of the biggest horror movies of all time, The Exorcist. Now, The Exorcist, of course, was based on a novel that was released in 1971, one of two novels released in 1971, that helped assure people that are in charge of all of this creative output that Rosemary's Baby was not a fluke, it was not an outlier, it was not a one-hit horror wonder. There was a substantial audience for this. There was a lasting audience for this. People craved it. The mainstream actually was into scary stories. Again, The Exorcist was one of the huge hit novels that helped solidify this fact. And the other hit novel that helped solidify this was Thomas Tryon's The Other. Now, The Exorcist is well known, thoroughly known by just about anybody in the English-speaking world who's interested in any sort of fiction, as well as people in several other parts of the world. Whereas Thomas Tryon's novel, if you're someone like me who wasn't even alive when it was making waves, might not have been on your radar until maybe you got a little older and more invested into researching this sort of thing if that's what you're interested in. If you picked up Grady Hendrix's excellent Paperbacks from Hell, you might have read about it there. Or if you're a reader of Will Erickson's blog Too Much Horror Fiction, you might have read about it there. 
Or you might have been introduced to it through some other channels, or you might have never heard of it before I just mentioned it now. If you stick around for a little while, though, you'll hear more about it because it's one of the primary subjects of this episode. But before we get into that, I want to circle back to another work of horror fiction from the late 60s that I feel gets oddly overlooked in the discussion of what inspired the horror boom of the 70s, especially considering how immensely influential this particular work is. That's Night of the Living Dead. It came out in 1968, the same year as the Rosemary's Baby film adaptation, and while it didn't set the box office on fire, it was still hugely profitable. Not just in the United States, but overseas as well, and perhaps more so over there. Per the Wall Street Journal, it was the top money-making film in all of Europe upon its release. And its influence overseas is evident in a film like Tombs of the Blind Dead and the series that it spawned, as well as the film Let Sleeping Corpses Lie. It was also a bit of an underground, cinematic, sinister sensation, a celluloid boogeyman. Some critics had praise for it, among them Pauline Kael, Elliot Stein of Sight and Sound, and the Village Voice's Richard McGinnis. Elsewhere, in Variety and that bastion of all things new and hip and popular Reader's Digest, it was denounced as morally questionable or even reprehensible. Roger Ebert, while he liked the film, wrote an entire article devoted to how traumatized kids in the audience were at a screening in Pittsburgh upon the film's release. Those kids, seemingly similar to Ebert based on his article, were expecting something closer to the 1950s style of monster movie and instead ended up seeing a film that would completely redefine what it meant to be a zombie in fiction. And while Night of the Living Dead does not center on a frightening little child, it does feature an iconic moment in which a little girl named Karen Cooper turns into a zombie, eats her father, and attacks her mother. That little girl made such an impression on fans of the film that her zombified face, or the face of her actress, Kira Schoen, is what you see on many posters for the movie or the cover for many of the DVDs that have been released, the anniversary editions, special editions, collector's editions, many of those feature Karen Cooper, scary little zombie girl, staring out at you. As for the other three stories that I had previously mentioned as being responsible for the 70s horror explosion, all three of those do, in one way or another, focus on a frightening child. And they would lay the groundwork for other frightening children, popular frightening children and very memorable, to emerge in the 70s, including Damien from The Omen, the mutant baby from It's Alive, and the children from The Children of the Corn, an 80s movie based on a 70s short story. The kids I just mentioned are all the offspring of Reagan McNeil from The Exorcist and Holland and Niles Perry from Thomas Tryon's The Other. And those children, in turn, are the progeny of Rosemary's Baby. But Rosemary's very own newborn, sired by Satan himself, is hardly the first child to captivate minds and inspire dread in horror fiction. Or even in fiction that is just horror-adjacent, I think the first child I can remember frightening me, or at least unsettling me, as a kid, is the boy that was under the cloak of the Ghost of Christmas present in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And, of course, along with the boy who is ignorance, there is his sister under the Ghost of Christmas's uh, cloak, or his, his robe, rather. His sister, who is want, but... The Ghost of Christmas Present warns us 
to beware the boy more so than the girl, and I think that that probably still holds true. Want can be dangerous, ignorance more so. And as a kid, it shook me a little bit that this benevolent entity, this boisterous Santa Claus-like figure up to that point, points to these kids that he's hiding under his garments and declares that both of them, who appear helpless, are actually dangerous. And because he's garnered some trust because of his behavior before that, I believed him. I believed these kids could be scary. To reinforce that, soon afterward, I saw the Ray Bradbury Theater episode The Playground, starring William Shatner, which features its own frightening ghostly children. And I also read one of my favorite short stories, which features a little girl named Irma who is probably pushed too far in her defense. But she turns out to be intensely frightening and turns out to be very dangerous. And that short story is Robert Block's Sweets to the Sweet. And for those who don't know, Robert Block is the author of Psycho, a horror legend. And Sweets to the Sweet, if you have not read it, is an excellent, excellent short story. The source the, the original book where I found it was an anthology called Shudders by an editor named Ross R. Olney. And I found that in my elementary school's library. And it had some great short stories in there, short stories for adults. These were not stories for kids. It had The Monkey's Paw, amongst other classics. And it also had Sweets to the Sweet, which had an ending that definitely was not designed to be read by seven or eight-year-olds. Or I think I might have even been... I was probably seven. I couldn't have been six when I read that, right? Probably seven or eight. Either way, definitely not designed for someone as young as I was when I read it. Anyway, pardon my digression. The point I was trying to make is that A Christmas Carol, which features its unsettling children was written in the bottom half of the 19th century. Sweets to the Sweet was written in 1947. While we're on the subject, or at least while we've brought up Ray Bradbury, he authored his own scary child story, The Small Assassin, written in 1946. There is the Vault of Horror issue number 33, which features unsettling behavior by children and that came out in 1953. There is Mary Cat, Mary Catherine from We Have Always Lived in the Castle in 1962. And yes, she is 18 as of the novel, but the misdeeds, the dangerous things that she got up to prior to that took place when she was just 12 years old. I could go on and on. There's Jerome Bixby's classic It's a Good Life, which turned into one of the best Twilight Zone episodes, or one of the most memorable, at least, Twilight Zone episodes ever created. The children from The Turn of the Screw, who may or may not have been as dangerous as they were presented, depending on whether or not you believe the narrator or the governess is actually sane. There are the children from The Lord of the Flies. There are the Midwich Cuckoos. So, so many scary, scary little kids. So it shouldn't be too surprising that all four works that were involved in the horror revival of the 70s, that we're all benefiting from all these decades later still, all of those works either centered on and focused on a creepy kid or had a monster child in one of its most memorable scenes. And yet, most if not all of the kids that I've mentioned have some 
something to defend their behavior. Either they're just being kids and they don't realize how powerful they are, like the boy, the all-powerful boy in Jerome Bixby's It's a Good Life, or they're just born into something that they have no control over. They have no say over being the devil's child. Rosemary's baby obviously can't help that its father is the devil himself. Or they're possessed. Or, like the Midwich Cuckoos, they are born of aliens or some kind of alien influence. Or, like the boys in The Lord of the Flies, they are stranded and pushed to desperate measures that bring out animalistic and cruel and brutal behavior in anybody if they are pushed to those extremes and those limits, potentially at least. There's an element of blamelessness with a lot of scary kids. So it's all the more frightening when we encounter the somewhat rare, frightening child who is not really blameless, who has no excuse, has no defense. They're just evil through and through, and not because necessarily they're even programmed that way. They're not aliens. They're not demon children. They're not the Antichrist. They're human, but they're killers, sociopathic, psychotic, to a murderous degree. Think a very young Michael Myers, going upstairs, stabbing his sister to death, being examined in a hospital until his adulthood, and being regarded as someone incapable of compassion, someone who is just a black hole, still human, but purely inhumane. But Michael also has a precursor, and a pretty famous one, because almost a quarter century before Dr. Loomis looked into his eyes and realized that there was nothing remotely salvageable there, another small child proved just as homicidal, but more resourceful, more creative. Rhoda Penmark was just a bad seed. Now, I would be remiss not to mention that Rhoda Penmark, in her own way, might have inherited her evil. She is not the daughter of the devil. She is not the spawn of some sort of unfeeling alien life force. However, her grandmother was a serial killer who got started very young, much like Rhoda, and sociopathic tendencies can be influenced by one's genes. Now, that does not necessarily guarantee someone is going to become a cold-blooded killer. Far from it. So even though William March, the creator of the character, plants the revelation of Rhoda's lineage as a monumental moment, it's not necessarily presented as something that excuses her behavior either. Not every sociopath or even psychopath is a killer. Not every sociopath or psychopath knows how to very effectively pretend not to be what they are. Rhoda is, in certain aspects, very childlike still. She is a bad liar when confronted by the things that she has done by people that are suspicious of her. She resorts to the easiest method of lying, which is just denial, which is, of course, also not terribly effective, I guess. We have varying degrees of evidence as to how effective that actually can be. I suppose I should retract that a little bit, but on the page, at least, it doesn't come across as very effective. It comes across as very child childish. I didn't do it, but we have the evidence. I, I still didn't do it. It's kind of the, uh, the old 
Bart Simpson thing. You just immediately, impulsively as a kid, say, no, 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 that wasn't me, even though you're sitting there, you're, you're holding the cookies, and the cookie jar is smashed to pieces on the floor, and the parent is looking at you saying, I know you, I know you took the cookies. And all you can think to say is, nuh-uh, no, it must have been somebody else. And somehow they, they framed me exquisitely to look like the guilty party here. She displays, in certain moments at least, an infantile acumen for deception. But then she's very adult-like when it comes to her culpability for what she has done. Because this is all premeditated. This is not impulsive. This is not something she's done on a whim. It feels, especially as you go through the novel, it feels like something she is aware of about herself. And she's very aware of what she wants to do and is capable of doing and how she can even get away with it because ultimately her best defense is that she is a little girl and nobody is going to suspect a little girl of the horrible, horrible deeds she commits time and time again. And once she gets a chance to gather her thoughts and collect herself, the childish nature fades and something far beyond her years and far more menacing comes to the fore. In the book, it is a very stoic, unnaturally, uncannily calm fury. I, I don't even know if fury is the right word. It's just a, a stillness and a, a, a control that is unnerving. Whereas in the classic film adaptation, it becomes an authoritarian rage that is that, that just radiates off the screen. This is best illustrated in parallel moments from the book and the film. She is confronted by a simple-minded man who does not know what he's getting himself into named Leroy. And Leroy, for some reason, takes it upon himself to tease this little girl about a murder that she's committed with a pair of shoes. Again, she beat a boy to death and then saw to his drowning over a penmanship award. And she beat him with those shoes, which Leroy claims he has in his possession, even though she thinks she has disposed of them. And when Leroy confronts her about this, playfully, he thinks, because he's a bit twisted in terms of what he thinks is playful, she at first tries to lie with her simple denial. But once she immediately becomes, or promptly, I guess, soon after, becomes convinced that Leroy really does have her shoes, she very calmly tells him that she wants them back. Even when the dialogue in the book is written as, as though it should be more forceful and there's an exclamation point behind her words, she's still described as speaking calmly. She said calmly, give me those shoes back. That's taken directly from the text. Then it's followed up with, she said patiently, you'd better give me those shoes back. They're mine. Give them back to me. The way that she does not lose her cool, maintains her nerve, is unsettling. It would be unsettling in an adult who is being confronted with the prospect of having their murder weapon discovered, much less an eight-year-old girl. And then you contrast that with the way it plays out in the, in the film adaptation, and it is a very different scene that is, I think, equally intense and scary, just in a different way. Give me 
those shoes back? Oh, no, I got them shoes hid where no part of a bee can find them. You better give me those shoes. They're mine. Give them back to me. I ain't giving them shoes back to nobody. You'd better give them back to me, Leroy. I'm keeping them shoes. <laughs> Who says I got anybody's shoes except Bo? You did. You get them and give them back. I'm fooling you. I'm teasing. I got nobody's shoes. I got work to do. Give me back my shoes. I got nobody's shoes. Don't you know what anybody's teasing you? Will you bring them back? Okay, with your puzzle. I got no shoes. I keep telling you. Will you bring them back? I believe you did it. I was fooling before, but now I believe you kill him. You kill a little boy with his shoes. You've got them hid, but you'd better get them and bring them back here, right here to me! It's a child's tantrum turned into something considerably more sinister, because she's not just screaming about something that mommy won't buy her, or that she lost and doesn't understand why she can't find it, and is just frustrated, and somebody just needs to sit her down and calm her down, maybe discipline her, no. This is a little girl that is capable of murder. She's talking to somebody who, even though he is an adult, is out of his weight class. And even though she is young, she has the advantage of presumed innocence. And before I go further into that, I do feel compelled to say, and I'm hardly the first person to say this, but Patty McCormick, the actress who portrayed Rhoda Penmark, nails this performance. And even though she is doing something in this scene, different from what's on the page, she is doing what she's being asked to do to pretty much perfection. This could have gone very differently, very far to the south, just into a range of poor child acting that would have made this laughable. And instead, it's, for those of us who have seen it, iconic. I would put this up there with any other frightening, scary child that is ever existed on the screen. She obviously is not going for subtlety, but I tend to think subtlety is a bit overrated. I don't think it's bad by any stretch, but I think people tend to treat it as though it's inherently better than the sensational. And sometimes a character or a moment calls for the sensational. But back to the point I was going to make, the advantage of presumed innocence and the fear that can be generated from subverting the expectation that we have of something that is supposed to be innocent turning deadly. If I were to hear about a volcano erupting and killing thousands of people or an earthquake that leveled an entire city, it would be awful and Natural disasters is something that I've, I've always been interested in, in a morbid way. And I've seen images that are more frightening from real-life catastrophes than anything I've ever read in a book. And just chilled me and gave me nightmares. I've had more nightmares about tornadoes than just about anything else, except for the aliens from the movie Alien. But those are expected calamities in terms of the loss of life and the fact that we know that sooner or later a volcano will erupt again. A tsunami is going to happen again sooner or later. An earthquake, a hurricane, all of these things, they are part of the cycle of nature. They are destined to happen again. They have 
to happen again. Now, conversely, if I were to hear about two people out of 10,000 dying at a theme park, I would think, what the hell is going on at this place? And then if two more people died two weeks later, a month later, I'd be like, oh my God, four people have died at this theme park within two months? This is insane. What is going on here? Is somebody there deliberately trying to have people killed? Or are they just that negligent about the safety of their rides? What is happening here? Because people die in natural disasters. People are not supposed to even be injured, much less lose their lives at a theme park. We understandably presume that certain places, certain things are supposed to be safe. In other things, we accept a certain level of danger about them. Children fall in the category of things that are supposed to be safe in terms of non-threatening to themselves. Well, maybe not themselves. We do think we have to protect children from themselves, but not in a way where they are deliberately trying to hurt themselves, in a way where they might accidentally try to jump across a distance that they can't jump across or play with something, play with a knife, play with fire, play with a toy that's hazardous for some reason or another, that we have to warn them about. It, not anything that they are intentionally trying to use to harm themselves or harm others. We presume that they're innocent, so it stands out more in real life or in fiction when they turn out to be very, very dangerous, and especially when they turn out to not just be dangerous, but capable it's one thing for a child to have ill intentions. It's another for them to be able to act on those intentions. For some of us, that is simply unimaginable, unfathomable, or at least bordering on those things. And so we're always going to give benefit of the doubt to that which is presumed to be innocent. And a deviously bright child murderer can recognize this and use it to their advantage. And if they have some way of adding an extra layer of insulation between themselves and the presumption of their guilt, all the better. For example, if they were to have a twin brother that they could either pin the crimes on or at least use to muddy the waters about who actually committed the crimes, that would be very useful. And that's the case in Thomas Tryon's The Other, or at least that seems to be the case, but as it turns out, that barely scratches the surface as to what's really going on. There is a bad seed in the other. Holland, the ever so slightly older of the two twins, is introduced to us very early on in the book, within the first few pages, engaged in an act of horrible, hard-to-read animal cruelty. And at this point, I will warn that I'm about to go into some of the book's details, including the ending in A Big Revelation, so proceed however you'd like to from here. In a classic yin and yang scenario regarding twins in fiction, we have the bad twin established as Holland, and then we have the mild-mannered good twin, Niles, his brother. Niles is thoughtful and sensitive, and his brother Holland is the type of kid who would kill an innocent pet. So it's pretty well established that one is the inverse in terms of personality compared to the other. 
this being a horror story, you might expect that there is some chicanery afoot here and that things are not exactly as they seem, and sure enough, that turns out to be the case. But maybe not exactly in the way that you would expect, and certainly not for folks who actually originally read this novel in 1971. The twist that arrived in The Other is a big part of what made it a sensation when it was released, and it had a good run on the bestsellers list. Not quite as good as The Exorcist did. The Exorcist was a full-blown phenomenon, while The Other was merely a huge success. Now, there are a couple of probably easy-to-ascertain reasons as to why The Other did not have the same kind of lasting cultural endurance that Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist had. Probably even just one primary reason, and that being that its film adaptation did not make any kind of impression on anyone, whereas Rosemary's Baby was a hit and The Exorcist was an enormous hit, one of the biggest movies of all time, upon its release. The film adaptation of The Other, in fact, wasn't even a sleeper hit or a cult hit the way that Night of the Living Dead was. And while it now has a pretty respectable rating on IMDb, I'd say even better than respectable rating on IMDb, as well as Rotten Tomatoes, it's never really gotten the full reassessment as a film the way that some late-blooming iconic films have. It's not like The Thing, for instance, where it didn't make any noise at the box office, but then years later is recognized as a bona fide classic. As to why its popularity didn't even survive the first half of the 70s, I can only begin to speculate. So speculate I shall. Holland Perry is unlike his perturbing progeny peers who procured popularity during this period. Like Rhoda Penmark, he is possibly partially a product of a lineage of mental instability. But he isn't an innocent possessed by a demon. He hasn't been zombified, and he's not an infant that is the product of the machinations of a cult that worships the master of evil. He is depicted ultimately as the product of his own decisions, both in terms of what he does to others and what happens to him, his fate. Because, as we find out on the last page before the book enters Act 3... Holland has been dead since the prologue. That awful attempt at animal cruelty that I mentioned earlier ended up backfiring on him, and he ended up killing himself. His brother, Niles, has been in denial about his slightly older brother's death. And so, all the crimes that were led to believe were committed by the bad twin, Holland, throughout the book, including acts of murder, were actually committed by Niles, who apparently inherited some of the family's genetic madness. Although there is at least the suggestion of something supernatural at play, the boy's grandmother, Ada, has taught them a game, quote-unquote, in which they can use a sort of super empathy to take on the experiences and even characteristics of anything they target, be it animal or human, as well as alive or dead. Hence, at the funeral for his brother, Niles took on Holland's personality using the game. Now, this feels a bit superfluous or maybe disposable, something that was just added on to make sure the book fit in with the trend that was set or expected to be set by Rosemary's Baby, that of horror stories featuring a supernatural component. 
And I say this not just because of what you find in the text, but because the story itself appears to have been influenced much more so by horror stories that don't feature anything supernatural. In particular, the way it ends has a lot of similarities to both The Bad Seed and Psycho. While the plot twist in The Other might have found more popularity currently in many other stories that came after it that I am not going to mention now for sake of spoiling any of them for people who might not have seen them or read them, but if you're familiar with any popular fiction from, say, the 90s onward, there are probably a few examples that you can think of, including one relatively recently that shocked me in how similar it was to the other without, at least from the research I did, seeming to acknowledge that blatant similarity. Not that I can blame the filmmakers for eschewing that acknowledgement, considering no critics seem to point it out either, which I guess is just further testament to how generally unknown the other is. But Tryon's novel is far from the first work of fiction to employ such a twist, and a similar type of twist, at least, is utilized in Psycho, Robert Bloch's masterpiece. Both stories feature a character who thinks that they are speaking to and engaging with a diabolical loved one who is to blame for the murders that happen throughout the book until the ending reveals to us all that actually the person they think they're speaking to died some time ago, and they've just been keeping them alive entirely in their mind, in their warped, damaged imagination. For Norman Bates, it's his mother. For Niles Perry, it is his slightly older brother, his twin, his double, Holland. And the final few pages of the other even mirror the final couple of pages of Psycho in that the living person seems to have been completely subsumed by the fabricated personality of the deceased person. In Psycho, Norman appears to completely believe by then that he is his mother. And in the other, Niles, by the end, demands to be called Holland. The inspiration it takes from The Bad Seed is even more pronounced in its climax, where, just like in The Bad Seed, a prominent motherly figure, Rhoda's actual mom in The Bad Seed and Niles' grandmother in The Other, tries to kill the evil, murderous child and then tries to kill themselves, but only succeeds in doing the latter, not the former. The child survives, and they exhibit no signs of their capacity for murder having subsided. But while Rhoda is free to just go about her business and maybe kill again with nobody suspecting her, Niles at least has been locked away in a mental institution where you would think he would never get out to kill again. Then again, I'm sure nobody from Haddonfield, Illinois ever thought that that little boy named Michael who stabbed his sister to death on a Halloween night would ever get free from the mental institution that had him locked up and then go on a murder spree. That's always the potential worst-case scenario about the Rhoda Penmarks and Niles Perrys of the fictional world. That they might someday grow up to no longer be scary little kids, but scary big adults. Thank you for listening to Episode 3 of the Healthy Fears Podcast. The source for some of the information that I shared about Night of the Living Dead is the book American Horrors, Essays on the Modern American Horror Film, first published in 1987, edited by Gregory Albert Waller. In particular, my information came from the first essay in the book, 
written by R.H.W. Dillard. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, then by all means, feel free to subscribe. Then join me in two weeks as I go into a couple of stories that exploit the fear of being behind bars. If you don't want to wait that long, you can find more of my musings and a list of my publication credits at johnnycompton.com. One way or another, until then, maybe keep an eye on those kids. Make sure they're not misbehaving too badly. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.